T-minus 10, 9, 8, 7, and we have main engine start, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, and liftoff. Blast off into the potosphere with DGP nominal. All systems remain nominal, nominal, nominal. Hello everybody and welcome to TGP Nominal, your monthly look at all things science fact and science fiction. As we record this episode, it's the uh, 12th of April 2016, which is the date that uh, Yuri Gagarin became the first human in space. Now, regular listeners will know of our involvement uh, with Yuri's Night, which is the global party celebrating Yuri's amazing journey. And this year is uh, a big year. Uh, it's the 55th anniversary of his flight. And it's also the 35th anniversary of the STS-1, the, the Columbia, the first space shuttle that flew exactly to the date of Yuri's flight. Now, as always, joining me in the celebrations is my regular partner in crime, John Berger. How are you doing? Doing, John? Whoa! Ooh! <laughs> I went back to Cockney. Boy, that's that's unoriginal. Oh well. Bogus, dude. <laughs> oh, I love those movies. <laughs> <laughs> Who cares about those movies when The Force Awakens is out? It's not out here yet. Oh, you poor baby! It doesn't come out to the 18th here. Oh, in fact, I got. I got lucky because I got mine delivered a day early. Okay, was that was that Amazon? <laughs> no, Best Buy actually. All oh, right, okay. You know they they set it out and it was scheduled for a Tuesday delivery, like it should have been. But I guess I think it was the post office. They were just a bit more efficient than they should have been. Next thing I know, it's saying, "Oh, it's out for delivery on Monday." Yes. Do you get the uh, the two different sleeves in the states like we do here? Well, Best Buy had a special uh, steel box version. We have the light side. And the dark side ones. <laughs> um. So you know the Star Wars fans are going to buy both. Oh yeah, of course. Well, it's even more than that because they did not include a 3D version. They said that's going to be out later this year. So <laughs> those of us who like 3D, like me, are going to end up buying again. Mm-hmm. They know what they're doing, and damn straight, I'm buying it. <laughs> yeah, I was quite surprised when uh, I saw that uh, you had your release uh, last week. Yep. And we yes. got to wait to the 18th. Maybe it's just a matter of logistics and delivery, although I can't really imagine that's it. <laughs> and that just, I don't know. I never understood all that. They must have replication houses over there that could have handled it. I would have thought so. I mean, the only difference between the version that you've got and the version that we've got is that you come with three discs because you get the DVD version as well, don't you? Right. That never took off over here, having the, the DVD copies. Well, we just have the digital version of it, but, you know, with the code and yeah. download it. So. Well, okay. I mean, that's fine. But how many more hundreds of millions of people do we have? Yeah. There's <laughs> <laughs> probably bigger demand for that over here. We've got a lot more people that probably have not... Well, actually, I know a lot of people who still don't, have no idea what Blu-ray is. Really? know what DVDs are. Yeah, I'm not kidding. Wow. They've got big screen TVs, but they don't have Blu-ray players. They still have DVD. A massive screen TV with a really, well, not bad quality copy, but it's not going to look good on a big screen. Well, I mean, that also depends on how far away they sit. If yeah, they that's sit true. really close, it's going to look blurry. If they sit kind of far away, eh, they might not notice. <laughs> 
But oh yeah, I got it. I got it. I'm happy. Is, has it got commentary on there? Uh, you know, I never really did anything with the commentaries, but I do remember other people saying that it's not there because I saw another article about is it worth buying it, I guess, as opposed to streaming where you don't get that stuff anyway. I don't stream. I would rather have the disc, so oh, that's man. irrelevant to me, but I think one of the, the reasons why I was like, eh, you might not want to buy it is because of lack of commentaries. So my guess, my guess is that what they're doing is... They, you know, they obviously didn't release the 3D version. I'm guessing they are they are forcing a double dip, mm-hmm. and later this year it's going to be 3D plus commentary. They're probably going to throw a statue in or something like that, and you have to pay 150 bucks for it. If if, if there is no commentary, I can guarantee that Rebel Force Radio ah. will do one. <laughs> So, um, we are here tonight to talk about space in honour of Yuri Gagarin, and um, there's been a lot going on. I've, I've been a bit out of it lately because I've been concentrating on other projects. Um, so well, and you've been sick? That too. I was, I was out of it for a couple of weeks uh, with, with that. I mean, I could hardly move. Uh, and then my other half went down with it as well. So oh. <laughs> it was like, oh, great. So I've got a, a few stories. I, I know uh, you, you contacted me a little while ago and you were kind of chomping at the bit saying can we do some space stuff because I've got loads of stuff to do so I yeah you were sick either I mean you were too sick to let me know you were sick <laughs> <laughs> so what we'll do we'll have a, a little break and then we'll come back with um, some space news greetings fellow earthlings this is Richard Garriott the 483rd person to leave our home planet and the first second-generation American astronaut. If, like me, you long to explore the cosmos, take heart. While only a few of the over 18,000 NASA applicants will fly with NASA, there are many new avenues opening up for us to use. In addition to government astronauts and private astronauts like me, we will soon see independent commercial activities in space, which will be privately funded, privately planned, profitable enterprises, which will fly astronauts of their own. So the challenge I lay before you is to plan and execute some of these bold new businesses which will lead humanity into being a multi-planet species. See you on Mars, and happy Yuri's Night. The Star Wars character that inspires me the most is the Jedi Master, Obi-Wan. I think he's just obviously incredible with the lightsaber and he's an absolutely amazing mentor. In The Force Awakens, there's a character called Rey and I could definitely identify with her. As a young athlete coming into sport, I always knew that I had a talent and a natural ability, but it was about having the people to guide me and help me bring out the best in my performance. I need this. I think I can handle myself. I know you do, that's why I'm giving it to you. The advice that I would give to young female athletes to achieve their potential is knowing what you want to achieve, having a goal and working really hard towards it. If there was a Star Wars Olympics, Milwaukee's would be really good in the shop pub, so they'd have that event definitely. Jedi's would be fantastic jumpers, so I'd give that event to them. And I think I'd have them in the sprints, the hurdles and, and possibly the javelin. 
It's amazing to think of the creative talent that we have in Britain and it reminds me of a story of a guy called Roger Christian who has this crazy long white hair and he's a bit of a magician really and he basically created the lightsaber from a, you know, a box of dusty flash guns, you know, basically nothing but created this amazing thing that is, is inspiring and a huge, huge part of the film. Star Wars, made great in Britain. This is the BBC Home Service. Here is the news. Okay, so what do we talk about first? I think we should talk about that Falcon 9 landing. Dude, they nailed it. Yep. It was a, a big event all round, really, because it was a, a multiple mission at the end of the day when you think about it. Obviously, the, the landing wasn't the main part of the mission, but it's what everybody was waiting for. <laughs> oh, yeah. I just kept putting it on rewind, just kept watching it over and over and over again. And, and to see it come in at it, and it was coming in at a decent angle, you know, five degrees, ten degrees, and all of a sudden just... Legs come down, writes itself up, and lands. It was just the way that that's amazing. That speed regulated as it came down, and you you just looked at it and went, "That looks good." Yep. <laughs> yep. And then you, you could hear the audience, you know, the the, the folks at, at uh, yeah SpaceX, just you could hear them cheering even louder because it's like they were going to do it this time. Look at that! And then it landed, nailed it. It's like that is amazing. They did it. They freaking did it. Yeah, it was just picture perfect, wasn't it? It just, yeah, just I mean, it was, happened. It was a little bit off center, but so what? Yeah, you're, you're never going to get it exactly center every time. No, I mean, that that's a naysayer kind of thing. Oh, well, they didn't get it right on the bullseye. Whatever, I don't care. They landed it. One of the naysayer things, uh, one of the forums I, I go on, they were saying that it wasn't exactly a big historic event. Uh, what planet is he from? And I was like, well, what do you mean? And they said, well, we've been doing reusable landings for 30 years. It's no big Not thing. Not like that. And I said, I, I did cause a bit of controversy on there. I said, well, you get me a shuttle to land on a floating runway and then I'll be impressed. <laughs> True. <laughs> I have to have really good reverse thrusters to do that. Yeah. And it's got to be a hell of a long runway too. <laughs> He did kind of shut up at that point, but... Um. Yeah, okay, yes, we have had reusable, but not like that. And what was... was I, I'm not saying they can't do this, because I don't know any better, but Elon Musk was saying that they should be able to have that same item ready to go back up in a month. Wow. I was like, what? So the damage to the engine on uh, when it landed was pretty minimal then. I guess. Just a couple of spare parts, put them back in, away you go. Probably. Just a nice <laughs> thorough inspection, and I hope they can do it, but I don't know. I guess I'm just so used to the shuttle taking months of rehabilitation before it can go back up. Yeah. You know, now it's all of a sudden here. Yeah, we could probably be able to have it up next month. What? But st I don't care. That is so cool. They did it. But once again, and I have to say this, I am red, white, and blue American. Can we please stop it off with the USA, USA jingoism at these things, please? Do you, do you know what? When I heard that, I could just see you shaking your head at that point. <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. Rolling my eyes like, really? Really? Uh, that, that just irritates me. I mean, we're okay, we are well yeah. beyond the Cold War. We are well beyond fighting with other space agencies. And, you know, uh, last I checked, Elon Musk is not, you know, a, a 
you know, from from the United States. Well, no, he's, he's South African, isn't he? So, <laughs> yeah, <that's>, whatever. <laughs> that, that, just, that stuff just irritates me. Cold War's over, guys. Can we please knock that off? Uh, somebody said online, I think it was Gareth Jones, actually, a friend of the show, Gareth Jones. He was saying that he thinks that the autopilot on the new Tesla car is um, the same as the... <laughs> The same system that they're using on the Falcon 9 to land. Wow. <laughs> That's true. Well, you know, yeah, I mean, I guess it could make sense. Because really. I mean, same software, you uh, mean? Yeah. yeah. I can see that being the case. But if it is, I'll be really amazed. But you know what? Considering that he owns Tesla, why duplicate effort? Mm hmm. That seems to be all the way through on SpaceX. It's just same engine, just multiply it, join them together, away you go. Why yeah. not put it right across the board <laughs> with Tesla? Not the engines, obviously. Wow. Right, that would have been some I car on a, a car. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just a tad. They get a few speeding tickets with one of those, I think. The um, cops would never be able to catch you. <laughs> <laughs> I just see them with one of them speeding guns going, uh... It broke. It, it doesn't work anymore. <laughs> <laughs> so they did it. They did it. That is just... That's amazing. I love it. And then, uh, on top of that, what the, that was carrying... It's got an acronym. It's BEAM. Yeah. Bigelow Environmental Activity Module, I think it's called. And uh, that's going to be amazing when, when they actually uh, attach that to the ISS and, um, you know, get that inflated. It'll be... Uh, this is weird to think inflatable. Yeah. But, I mean, it makes sense. As long as it's durable. Because that's the thing. Because those kind of uh, inf inflatable environments, they react differently in space than they do here because they virtually go rock hard mm -hmm. um, and it does give you virtually the same protection from uh, radiation and um, dust and whatever that's hitting the side of it and um, I mean if that works they've pretty much got what they need to go to Mars in, in regards to you know, buildings and facilities and so forth. Just make them inflatable. Yeah, um, the, these these things can fit inside the fairing of a rocket, and off you go. I think it's about a third of the weight of something that would have to be constructed there. It's, it's already done for you. It's this is amazing. Um, I think it's going to be attached for two years on the ISS, um, so that they can do experiments and things in there. And uh, it was another first for um, for a Brit again. <laughs> uh, Tim managed to catch the dragon on <laughs> to to birth it with the ISS. So uh, he, he's notching them up <laughs> for us now. Okay, you know if you're going to keep that up, then I'm going to retract my whole thing about jingoism. <laughs> no, it's, it's, uh, it's uh, <laughs> we 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 wouldn't do the uh, the chanting thing. It's not yeah, the, really, it's not the yeah, British yeah, way. It's not the British way. <laughs> just uh, uh, it's like oh cheerio good job pass the tea please <laughs> something like that <laughs> is it Pim's O'Clock yet um, <laughs> <laughs> that is an amazing project the uh, the beam project I'm just hoping that it will help us for the next stage go either moon or Mars to be honest I'd, I'd like us to go to both <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I, I kind of understand why they'd like to go to Mars because it's a bigger challenge and all that. But it's also one of those things where it's, you know, baby steps. Yeah. At least if we do something on the moon, 
and something goes wrong, it's what a three day travel. Um, yeah, about that, about two to three days. Yeah. Why not prove it on the moon first? Use it as a training exercise. Yeah, why not? I mean, we, there's a lot we don't know about the moon still. Yeah. And we haven't spent that long there, if you think about it. I mean, yeah. what's the longest we, we were on the moon for? I don't know, to be honest. Probably about four days or something like that. Yeah. And that was how many years ago? Yeah. Coming 40 up for years new, ago? Yeah, something like that? Nearly 50, really, when yeah. you think about it. 2019 will be 50th anniversary, so... Uh, you know what, hell, I might as well just go into the article that I've got regarding the moon. Didn't mean for this to be a segue, but it, it works. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, new evidence from the te- a team at UCLA, have, they've been able to clarify a little bit more of the moon's origins. It's always been kind of theorized that the moon was ripped apart from the Earth in one way or another. And now they actually have a little bit more evidence to say, yes, that is exactly what happened. So... They estimate that this collision happened about 100 million years after Earth was formed. And what they did was they basically looked at the way various oxygen isotopes are inside the soil and the rocks and so forth. Because there are several different kinds of oxygen isotopes within Earth's crust and other bodies in the solar system. Well, those different isotopes are like a fingerprint. And what they found is that by analyzing moon rocks that were brought back from the various Apollo missions, that basically the moon and the Earth have the exact same oxygen isotope fingerprint. So what they're theorizing happened now is that Another body, which they're calling Thea, smashed into Earth and basically became part of both the Earth and the moon. Okay. So instead of, whereas if it kind of just shaved off the Earth and it became the moon, it would still have its own oxygen fingerprint. So what they're saying is that it actually just smacked right into Earth with such force that it was able to basically rip the moon from the Earth. So, or, or should we say, it became... Half of Thea became the Earth, half of Thea became the Moon. Basically, it ended up with two identical isotope fingerprints. So they're they're calling it a cataclysmic collision that happened to do that. But uh, just because of the fact that they have these same fingerprints, they're basically coming out and saying, yeah, the Moon is from the Earth. That kind of makes sense in, in many respects, because you look how the, the Earth uh, is created with the different areas joined together at one point and then broke mm-hmm. away from each other right. Who, who's to say and then if you look at like pebbles on the beach where uh, the wear and tear of that that forms the shape that they are it, it's going to be dissimilar similar in space for planets that's why they are that kind of shape So, I mean, again, this is all theoretical because back in 2014, a team of German researchers uh, said that they actually have different oxygen isotope ratios, which kind of threw this whole theory into disarray. But uh, now they have new results basically confirming that, no, they do have the same. The moon came from the Earth. So we'll we'll probably never, ever know. But, yeah, maybe we will. Who knows? But uh, that theory now has yet even stronger evidence to support it. I mean, we could probably drill down to a certain degree on the Earth. And if it it is true, then we can probably find some rock formations down there that may match what the moon is made from. Yeah, that'd probably... Yeah, yeah. I mean, because obviously these are surface objects. Mm. I mean, whenever we do get the ability to drill down into the core check the the oxygen isotope fingerprints there mm-hmm. that would probably be far more definitive but we're obviously a long way from doing that sort of thing oh yeah <laughs> <laughs> 
China has successfully launched a retrievable research spacecraft on April the 5th to perform various scientific experiments in space. The SJ-10 satellite lifted off on board a Long March 2D rocket from uh, Launch Area 4 at the Jiquan Satellite Launch Center located in northwest China. The spacecraft was put into low Earth orbit and will stay in space for two weeks conducting research. The return capsule will land at the, and I'm not too sure if I'm going to pronounce this right, it's the Siziwang Banner in Inner Mongolia, uh, which is uh, designated as the landing spot for Chinese manned orbital missions. An orbital module will remain in space to carry out further studies. Due to the design and the retrievable nature of the mission, the launch vehicle didn't need to include a protective payload fairing. The car-sized spacecraft has a launch mass of about 3.6 metric tons and is capable of carrying 1,320 pounds or 600 kilos of payload. Uh, it's been carrying 19 experiments in, involving microgravity fluid physics, microgravity combustion, space materials, space radiation effects, microgravity biological effect, and space biotechnology, which could mean anything, really. The Air Force put up a top-secret satellite. Okay, thanks. <laughs> These experiments were selected from up some 200 applications and come from six Chinese universities and collaborations with the European Space Agency and the Japanese Aerospace Exploration Agency, which is why they call it JAXA, because it's uh, easier to say. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, so the, the Chinese are now making retrievable rockets. It's more like a space shuttle-type thing. Um, but leading on to that, the Indian Research Organization, or the ISRO, has announced that uh, India is on track to launch its first reusable space plane in early May. The reusable launch vehicle, or the RLV, <laughs> is scheduled to conduct its maiden flight to evaluate various technologies required to develop a fully reusable space vehicle. According to the Times newspaper of India, the 1.5 ton space plane is slated to make its maiden flight from the Satish Darwan Space Centre, which is the, the normal launch facility for India, officially known as the Reusable Launch Vehicle TD. I don't know what TD stands for, though. Uh, is undergoing final preparations at the Vikram Sarhabi Space Centre. Its primary role will be to reduce the cost of access to space. The cost of placing one kilogram of objects in space is about $5,000. Scientists are hoping that the cost will come down to about $500 with the anticipated success of this vehicle. In a report by the Tech Times, after launch, the RLV-TD will go up to around 70 kilometers or 43 miles and come back to Earth through the help of a space plane. It is expected to land in the Bay of Bengal. More tests flights have been scheduled thereafter. Upon a successful completion of the trial runs, the spacecraft will finally be used from 2025 onwards. Now, this is a very unusual spacecraft. It's another space shuttle-ish looking thing. <laughs> it's launched from a, on top of a rocket booster instead of alongside it like the old shuttles used to be. But it's not going to land. 
it's going to splash down, which is unusual for a space plane. Yeah, it doesn't make it much of a plane then, does it? But it does say that um, they are hoping to make changes to it over the years so that it can actually land on a runway. But at the moment, it splashes down in the sea. Yeah. Uh, But yeah, everyone seems to be going for this reusable stuff at the moment. Everyone's trying to do it. I mean... It's a good idea. The space shuttle, it was just really, really expensive to reuse it. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, it's, it's definitely the way to go. It certainly beats leaving stuff up there as space junk. To me, it kind of looks like the kind of rocket models they'd use in those old Japanese live-action movies. <laughs> Sorry, I'm not insulting it. I'm just saying that's what it looks like. Very smooth, very... You know, it looks like a space shuttle external tank with wings thrown on it. Yeah, kind of. You know, if the aerodynamics are there, then it's going to work, isn't it? So, basically, watch this space. So, next month, we may see a reusable space plane launching from India. I just want Star Trek transporter technology. I'm not too sure about that yet. (laughs) (laughs) I've seen seen Spaceballs. It's, um, yeah. They've now discovered the farthest ever seen galaxy. It's called GNZ11, whatever. And the light we're getting now is the way that galaxy looked 13.4 billion years ago, which is just 400 million years after the Big Bang. So uh, it's located in Ursa Major, and it's this definitely shatters the previous record, which was 13.2 billion years in the past. So this one's now 13.4 billion years. And it's just amazing that we can actually see this galaxy, what it looked like that long ago. It's funny to read the article because they make it sound like that's the way the galaxy is now, just because naturally that's the kind of thing we do. Mm. We see it we see it in the present, so we kind of apply it that way. But it's like, no, 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 this thing is 13.4 billion years old. This is time travel. Oh, that's absolutely time travel. Uh, it, it's amazing what, they, what they've done with that. And the way they do that is they do what's called redshift, which... That's because the galaxy is still expanding. The The redshift is basically a way of being able to tell how far away it's traveling from us. And just because of that, we can get various statistics off of it. Uh, it's called spectroscopically. You know, that, that's the way they, they figure it out. I wish I could understand this, the real science behind that, but I know that as soon as I see the formulae behind it, my brain will just shut off. Yeah, I know that feeling. Uh, it's just... I love reading about this, but then they start getting formulas and and stuff like that. And my brain's just like, I'm done. What's also interesting about this galaxy is that it's growing a lot faster. It's growing at a rate of about 20 times greater than than the Milky Way does today. So that means it's really bright. And it's bright enough that they can perform things like these... these, spectroscopic observations to it both Hubble and Spitzer it's just amazing and um, like I said this is the kind of thing that they actually expect the web to be able to do with even greater clarity you know if there was anything living on areas like that and it was they were able to use telescopes to us and if they could see us clearly they'd be still seeing dinosaurs and stuff and it's like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, you know, they did they did have that uh, one original Star Trek episode with um, the Squire of Gothos, where they find him, and 
they go down to see him. He's like, I must admit, I didn't think that your people were capable of space flight. And uh, then he realizes that he made an error in time because the light he was seeing from Earth was a couple hundred years old. <laughs> and he even says, oh, have I made an error in time? Oh, and I so wanted you to feel welcome. <laughs> so he's there with, you know, the, the frilly European outfits and playing a harpsichord and all that. Yeah, um, pretty much. <laughs> See, I mean, even in our own galaxy, that's it's great that we're listening for radio signals, but by the time any kind of coherent radio signal reaches us, yeah, the alien life form on that planet are already several hundred years beyond us. Mm-hmm. Slovakia are gearing up to launch its first satellite into orbit with the aim of demonstrating the country's ability to carry out scientific experiments in space. The pocket-sized SCOOB, small s, small k, capital C, capital U, capital B, E, <laughs> SCOOB, uh, which is kind of a, a CubeSat, is currently slated for liftoff in June on top of uh, SpaceX's Falcon 9 rocket uh, from Cape Canaveral in Florida. The Central European state is... The Central European state? I thought they were Eastern European. Uh, is one of the last countries on the continent to have its own satellite. Uh, weighing about 2.2 pounds or 1 kilo, the Scoob is a 4-inch or 10-centimeter cube that will carry an onboard computer, a communication system and a small camera to conduct experiments when orbiting the Earth. The main goal of this project is to demonstrate that Slovakia is capable of doing highly sophisticated space research. We see the development of Scoob as the first spark of light showing the world that Slovakia belongs to countries with potential in space and science industry. We want to show that Slovakia has excellent universities, science institutions and companies which innovate and make our country a good name around the world and is going to prove it through our first satellite made in Slovakia, said, uh, oh, I didn't see this bit, uh, Lucia Labachova, marketing manager of Slovak Organization for Space Activities, or SOSA. It has an acronym. Of course. Um, <laughs> Space-related has to have an acronym. SOSA was founded in 2009. It's a non-governmental entity developing the SCOOB project. The organization was established to popularize space research and to increase general awareness about the importance of space industry. Uh, SCOOB is also backed by the government and could serve as an example of cooperation between university students and companies and other supporters. The Ministry of Education, Science research and sport and the Ministry of Transport uh, Construction and Regional Development dedicated the satellite at about $102,000 or 90,000 euros in total. Many Slovak companies support the project with their know-how qualified employees and also financially. So it's really good to see some of these um, smaller nations as it were. I say smaller nations. I think Slovakia well, yeah, is bigger than the UK but... Um, <laughs> Um, no, not according. No, 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 not at all. <laughs> no, I'm looking at a map right now. It's is, no, it, is no, it really no. tiny? It, yeah, it's it's small. <laughs> uh, but it's really good to see that these these nations actually coming together and and producing space technology. Yeah, why not? You know, I mean, yeah, on the surface, it's like Slovakia, really. But hey, 
why not? Welcome aboard. Yeah, definitely. I mean... And, uh, and yes, I would say they're Central European because they're kind of wedged in between Austria, Hungary, Ukraine, Poland, and the Czech Republic. Some of the Baltic states, I get a bit confused with... Uh, I know. Who's who. <laughs> and that shows when, when, when I watch Eurovision. I'm like, really? I didn't know they were there. <laughs> that's true. That's coming up next month, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. I actually, I, I actually watch Eurovision. Don't judge me. <laughs> I only watched the final, though. It's good fun. It is. It is. And some of the songs are really good. Some of them are really funny, actually. <laughs> Astronomers have spotted a never-before-seen type of white dwarf star. The, the thing that makes this one different from other white dwarfs is that the atmosphere is mostly oxygen. So normally what happens is that it, it's, it's hydrogen or some of the other lighter elements because you know, as it uses up its fuel and it suddenly expands out to where it would you know, swallow up the Earth in this case, and then it all compresses down, it just naturally from gravity, the heavier elements get in closer to the core, the lighter elements end up on the outside. And normally there's hydrogen and so forth in the atmosphere, but in this case... They found that this star has an atmosphere that's mostly oxygen, which means oxygen is the lightest element in its atmosphere. So that means that the hydrogen and helium is pretty much gone, and they've never seen this before. Wow. So this star, this, here you go, get ready. I kid you not, this is the name of this wife dwarf star. SDSS J124043.01 plus 67103.68. That's its name. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to remember that. Just like uh, the IT crowd? Yeah. And that crazy new English emergency number? Mm-hmm. Well, that's easy to remember. 018-999-8819-911972533. A friend of mine actually has that memorized. He loves it. So... <laughs> Yeah, but, but this is just, they've never seen this before, and it doesn't fit with how we understand stars die. So they just don't understand what happened. Now, there, there are obviously a lot of speculation. Was there some kind of internal explosion that blew the hydrogen and helium away from it? Was this possibly part of a binary setup where, you know, where the other star ripped off its its hydrogen and helium they don't know but what they do know is simply that they have never seen this so basically they're going to have to try to figure out what's going on it's a new class of star that's been discovered wow so they're always you know they're constantly coming up with new discoveries yeah and I mean, this just think about it the past two years alone this has been one hell of an in incredible time to be alive oh yeah be between uh, the philae lander and, yep. and uh, new horizon definitely and, you know, reusable rockets standing upright <laughs> for crying out loud. Yep. And just with and all this stuff, this is just amazing. I'm loving this. Not Sorry, I'm not trying to play on McDonald's logo or anything. <laughs> I'm loving it, yeah. But if you think about it, when, when the, the shuttles disbanded, it was almost like, well, what now? And then it's just a few years down the line and it's, this is so cool. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it wasn't. It wasn't really a what now. It was there. There was a what now based on okay, NASA. What are you going to do to get us back up in space? But I mean, we had the rovers. Mm -hmm. You know, we've got Hubble and um, Kepler. You know, and all of those. Oh, speaking of Kepler, have you heard about that one? Probably not. Yeah, Kepler went into emergency mode. Oh wow. Mm-hmm. One thing I didn't know until this article, because I've you know we've talked about Kepler before as well. Yeah, yeah, we have. That thing is actually seventy-five million miles away. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking space telescope. Okay, so. 
So it's up in Earth orbit, whatever. And all of a sudden it's like, no, 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 it's about 75 million miles away. It takes 15 minutes just to contact it. And that was just like, oh, okay, I need to pay more attention to these things. But uh, apparently it went into an emergency mode, uh, which, number one, obviously indicates that is a problem. But number two, it actually uses its energy reserves faster that way. So they had to take a lot of effort and so forth to get that thing back up and running. And the whole thing with the Kepler that is its whole purpose is to determine how many stars in our galaxy might have habitable planets. So the whole thing is that it's looking at star systems that are pretty much the same distance from the, the center of the Milky Way as you know our planet is. Yeah. Just that habitable zone. And it's actually 75 million miles away, and it's it's angled in a way that it won't catch any light from our sun. So it wants to have just a pure look at what might be possible for habitable life, or at least habitable planets out in the rest of the galaxy. Yeah, so that went on and uh, said, whoops, I'm in trouble here. But fortunately, a few days later, they were able to recover it, and it came out from an emergency state. So that is at least something positive. So it was down for, let's see, uh, they, they do their waves in what are called campaigns. It's In each campaign, they give the telescope a different mission, you know, a different set of things that it needs to do. Yeah. And this one happened 14 hours before it was supposed to be maneuvered to start campaign nine. Because this happened beforehand, they ruled out the maneuvering as, as a possible issue issue, uh, but they still don't really know what the cause is. All they know is that it just kind of blinked out and said, whoops, I'm in trouble. But now they've got it back online, they're going to be analyzing data. Campaign 9 apparently is not a problem. They're going to let it do what it needs to do, as well as research what happened. But, yeah, a little bit of a paranoid few days for those folks trying to figure out what happened. Jeez. Yeah, I I didn't actually hear about that. Wow. Yeah, I saw that. I was like, oh, oh my, that's that's not good. Especially when they said that, yeah, in emergency mode it uses more of its energy. Ooh, that's bad too. But they say it, it's so far away that it actually only communicates every so often. Like, you know, once every two weeks or so forth, say, hey, I'm good. And then, you know, it'll download its data on a regular basis as well. It's not continually streaming. So they went to check up on it and, and it said, yeah, I'm in trouble. That'd freak me out. Uh, just a little bit. Especially if you're on the, like, night staff or whatever and you, you got your feet up on the table and you just, like, you got a coffee and all of a sudden you get this. <laughs> Error yeah, message yeah, the, come the feet the feet come down from the table the coffee gets spat out <laughs> just like a movie <laughs> oh man it reminds me of a film uh, have you seen it it's called The Dish nope oh you've got to see it oh. it's about an Australian tracking centre that was supposed to be the relay for the moon landings Oh, wow, starring Sam Neill. Yeah. Nice. Really good film. Uh, I'm going to have to throw that on my Netflix list. <laughs> as soon as I'm done watching, you know, The Force Awakens for the 10,000th time. Yeah, I'm definitely going to be doing that when... when <laughs> I've, I've got it on pre-order, so it'll be here on the day that it gets released. I don't understand why it's taken so long, but I guess I shouldn't be surprised. A company that plans to send paying customers high into the stratosphere beneath a giant balloon has just added a second former NASA astronaut to the fold. The Arizona-based Worldview Enterprises aims to begin crewed operational flights by the end of 2017 and has tapped Ron Garan as its chief pilot. He's, he's really well known in the space community. He's um, done quite a lot of videos and things when he was up on the ISS and he was heavily involved in Yuri's night actually <laughs> so he's, he's had a lot of involvement there as it says it's their second astronaut that they've got on board their first astronaut is Mark Kelly oh 
who we know as the well the twin brother of Scott Kelly <laughs> um, and during his NASA career he was on STS 124 um, and he's already served with Ron Garan on board the ISS Mark Kelly is Worldview's uh, director of flight crew operations overseeing the missions in the big picture sense garen meanwhile will focus on the pilot in of individual flights uh, we work very well together and i can con- see that continuing on said ron garen uh, worldview will t- take passengers to an altitude of a hundred thousand feet or thirty thousand meters in a pressurized capsule allowing them to see the curvature of the earth against the blackness of space during a gentle ride that will last five to six hours from liftoff to touchdown nice the passenger capsule will be borne aloft a giant balloon and it will land on wheels after a gliding descent beneath a steerable parachute like a parafoil tickets are currently on sale for seven $75,000. Ouch. <laughs> it's cheaper than going on Virgin Galactic. That's um, true. <laughs> the Worldview company has already flown scientific payloads on uncrewed commercial flights and has successfully tested a 10% scale version of its crewed system on a flight to the stratosphere. Now, I've actually got a clip of Ron Garan talking about Worldview. Did you want to have a listen to that? Sure. I left NASA about two and a half years ago, and I left to be able to share a perspective of our planet, a really unique perspective of this place we call Earth, to do that in a way um, where I could do it full-time. The reason why I wanted to do that is I really believe that Seeing our planet from that perspective can have profound positive effects on the trajectory of our our global society. And I think it's really important to be able to have the ability to share that with people. The first time I went into space, it was 2008, I flew on Space Shuttle Discovery. On the third spacewalk that we did, I was strapped to the end of the space station's robotic arm and was flown through a big maneuver across the top of the space station and back. So at the top of this arc, I was looking down at the space station against the backdrop of the undescribably beautiful Earth 250 miles below, and it it took my breath away. I was filled with awe. Everything I've done since leaving NASA was done with the motive of sharing this big picture, long-term perspective. And now for the first time, I could literally take people to the edge of space and uh, have them experience for themselves firsthand with their own eyes uh, that perspective, that unique vantage point of our planet. I'm really excited about the flight test program that we're about to embark on. Uh, I'm really excited to be part of a team that's going to do something that's never been done before, to fly a manned capsule back from the edge of space and land gently back at a predetermined point on the ground. It's, it's all really exciting. Once we complete the, the flight test program, we will begin to take others to the edge of space. And imagine this, in a, in a shirt-sleeve environment with these massive windows uh, to, to look at the Earth, we will take people on a five-hour transformative experience. The more people that have the opportunity to have that perspective of our planet, the better off all of us here on the surface are going to be. Today, we've, we've taken pilots and, and engineers and scientists to space. Imagine what will happen when we take artists and poets and musicians. How much better are they going to be uh, with sharing this, this experience with the world? We're also planning on partnering with educational and environmental and humanitarian organizations to accelerate the transformative effects of this program. 
So what's really exciting is Worldview is not just about flying people to the edge of space. As important as that is, that's not where it stops. Worldview is also involved in cutting-edge research and experiments in science that are going to really increase our understanding of our planet, understanding of our upper atmosphere, understanding of what causes different trends in, in climate and weather, uh, and our ability to counter natural disasters. And when natural disasters happen, uh, Worldview balloons can bring up communications uh, uh, platforms that will help reestablish communication with, with first responders, with those affected, and I think that's really going to save lives in the process. 2016 is going to be an exciting year. It's going to be an exciting year for Worldview, uh, an exciting year for the commercial spaceflight industry. I'm looking forward to our flight test program getting off the ground. I'm looking forward particularly to the first crewed flight uh, of our capsule. But what I'm most looking forward to is seeing people experience that vantage point, seeing people experience that perspective of our planet for the first time. And most importantly is what they do with that experience, how they change the world for the better through that new perspective that they've gotten of our planet. That's cool, but I mean, call me cynical, but unfortunately, the only people who can afford that are basically the one percenters. Well, I mean, <laughs> they're not exactly known for, well, God, see, I don't know how to say that. <sighs> A lot of people like to blame the one percenters for the state that the world is in right now. Yeah. Especially when you have those, what, Panama Papers that came out. Mm-hmm. So I, I just don't have a lot of confidence that the one percenters are going to go up to see the curvature of the earth and then suddenly come down more enlightened on how they're going to help humanity. Sorry, I know I'm being cynical on that one, but that's the way I see it. Now, bring that down to something like 750 bucks, where just about anybody can see it, and okay, then I can see him reaching his ideal to some way. I think eventually it will come to that. Sure. I mean, that kind of thing will be the equivalent of going to a theme park, you know? Mm-hmm. But it's a long way off. <laughs> but, I know, you got to uh, start somewhere. Yeah. Blast off into the potosphere with TGP Nominal. Okay, a, a local victory here for Penn State University, my alma mater. A Penn State-led research group has been selected by NASA's Astrophysics Division to build a $10 million cutting-edge instrument to detect planets orbiting stars outside of our solar system. So the team led by, and I'm going to botch his name because this is what us Westerners do, Suvrath Mahadevan. I hope. Uh, he's a, the assistant professor of astronomy and astrophysics at Penn State. His team was selected after an intense national competition, blah, 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 blah. So when this is completed in 2019, this instrument is supposed to be the centerpiece of a partnership between NASA and the National Science Foundation called, here we go, the NASA NSF Exoplanet Observational Research Program, or NN Explore. Ah, <sighs> they just can't do it. No. So... <laughs> <laughs> So this this device, and I'm hoping I'm pronouncing it, it's N-E-I-D. That's the acronym they're using. Right. It's, it's supposedly it's derived from a word meaning to discover or visualize in the native language of the Tohono Odom. I'm hoping I'm pronouncing that correctly again, which is a tribe out in Arizona where this is actually going to get put into place. It's supposed to be more stable than any existing spectrograph. It's going to be available to astronomers around the world to allow precise measurements of the motions of nearby stars. So that's going to be used to discover and measure the orbits of rocky planets uh, at the right distances from their stars, sort of like where ours is, to host liquid water on their surfaces. 
It's going to be built over the next three years in laboratories on Penn State's campus, uh, as well as at partnering institutions. It's going to be installed into the three-and-a-half-meter telescope at the Kitt Peak National Observatory in Arizona. And uh, like I said, everyone, astronomers worldwide should have access to it. So the whole thing is actually a collaboration between Penn State the University of Pennsylvania, which is separate from Penn State, uh, the NASA Goddard Flight Center, University of Colorado, National Institutes of Standard and Technology, the Macquarie University in Australia, the Australian Astronomical Observatory, <gasps> and the Physical Research Laboratory in India. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Couldn't do it in one breath. But that's kind of cool to think that, that good old Penn State's going to be doing something like that. And, uh, you know, hey, detecting other planets that can hold water, do it. Yeah, Definitely. We'll probably never see them in our lifetime, but it's neat to know that they're there. Oh, yeah, well, it's, it's, it's important because, well, water is life. A new project has been announced that will attempt to launch a small spacecraft to our nearest stellar neighbor, Alpha Centauri, and return images and data to Earth within a generation. According to this, Alpha Centauri is only 4.37 light years away. It's not that far when you think it's about not. it, is it? It's going to have to get there in a real big hurry to be able to do it in a generation but you know the ambitious proposal is called breakthrough starshot and it was revealed today by billionaire yuri milner professor stephen hawking and a host of other scientists and experts the hundred million dollar research project will seek to prove a proposed concept for interstellar travel using a tiny satellite with a large laser powered sail that sounds remarkably like tron yeah, really <laughs> Today, we will commit to this next great leap into the cosmos, said uh, Stephen Hawking, because we're human and because our nature is to fly. The proposal involves uh, using a tiny nanocraft called a starship, which could fit between two fingers, attached to a giant sail. An array of lasers on Earth will then be used to direct the powerful laser approaching 100 gigawatts at the sail, accelerating it to 20% of the speed of light in a matter of minutes. Wow. <laughs> so they, they will be able to capture images of possible planets and other scientific data in our nearest star system alpha centauri just over 20 years after the launch yeah i mean if they can get it to 20 percent, i did some quick math calculation here it should take 22 years to get there and then you figure it's going to be four i'm just going to round it up 4.4 years for the signal to get back so yeah if they're if they can do that it would be possible to get information from Alpha Centauri 20, a little over 26 years after launch. Mm. Wow. Uh, That's cool. The the program will be led by um, Pete Warden, who's the former director of NASA Ames Research Center. So a big name there straight away. And is advised by a committee of world-class scientists and engineers. The board will consist of Stephen Hawking, Yuri Milner, and Mark Zuckerberg. So he's just putting money into it, basically. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's that's just like Oculus Rift. Mm Mm-hmm. Today, on the 55th anniversary of Yuri Gagarin's pioneering space flight, a nearly half a century after the original moonshot breakthrough starshot is launching preparations for the next leap to the stars there we go alpha centauri star system is 25 trillion miles when they put it that way (laughs) well you know (laughs) 
you know, I'm sorry, 4.37 light years is a lot easier to comprehend. Yeah. Uh, with today's fastest spacecraft, it will take about 30,000 years to get there. I like the new way they're coming up with it. <laughs> it's pretty amazing. I mean, you've got this starship. This creates the possibility of gram-scale wafer-carrying cameras, photon thrusters, power supplies, navigation and communications equipment, and uh, constituting a fully functional space probe. And then the light sail is pretty much based around what the planetary society were doing. Mm-hmm. but with lasers rather than um, solar sails. But yeah, 100 gigawatts. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a lot more than 1.21 gigawatts. Uh, gigawatts there, Marty. <laughs> at the start, chip can be mass-produced at the cost of an iPhone. <laughs> okay, and, well, that's good, but getting it up there is going to cost a lot more. Yeah, the, the light beamer, this is what they're calling the, the lasers, the light beamer, is a modular and, and is scalable. Once assembled and the technology matures, the cost of each launch is expected to fall to a few hundred thousand dollars. Yeah, uh, just a few hundred thousand dollars. <laughs> hey, considering how many millions it normally costs to send something up to space, I'll take a few hundred thousand dollars. Yeah, yeah. Speaking of which, I should be getting my little section of the... Because I funded the uh, that light sail project with Bill Nye. Mm-hmm. So I'm supposed to be getting a one square centimeter piece of light sail sent to me soon. That would be cool. That's going to be very cool. Yeah, that's definitely going to be framed, I would imagine. Oh, hell yeah. Oh, <laughs> yeah, you betcha. I'm just looking down this list of names of people. I mean, a lot of the names I don't actually know. But the actual facilities that they are involved with like uh, Harvard University, Princeton University, the Planetary Society, um, the University of Turin, um, University of Arizona, NASA Ames Research Center, uh, the Glenn Research Center, the British Interplanetary Society, the University of California, Cornell University. There's just so many different uh, academic facilities getting involved in this project, and it sounds so amazing. And something that, obviously, with Stephen Hawking involved with it, it must be pretty impressive. And, you know, these, these people have been hand-picked to, to be involved in it. So um, I'm looking forward to how that evolves, but it, this was only announced this afternoon. Nice. We are <laughs> cutting edge here, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> I, I actually saw it on the news, and I was straight on, on Google, yeah. right, let's find out what's going on here. So there will be links to everything involved with this on the website on our show notes, so you can have a look at what's involved in this. It's it's just an amazing project. Very nice, I like that. Well, there's even more evidence that there is a Planet Nine. Yeah, I know, I know. Some people are going to say that Pluto is Planet Nine. Not my choice. Sign, Not my choice. Sign the petition. Sign, yeah, sign the petition. <laughs> Tell Neil deGrasse Tyson to go pound sand. <laughs> I had nothing to do with it. But uh, So obviously we knew about this back in January, that there was some evidence to, to find it. Uh, but now there's even more evidence that there is still a Planet Nine. So if it does exist, uh, it's estimated to be ten times more massive than Earth, but they say ten times more massive than Earth, but four times the size. Does that mean it's denser? I think it might, yeah. That, otherwise, I just looked at that and was like, mm, I'm not quite sure what that is. But the way that they found out about it in the first place was that they found some Kuiper Belt objects that 
just weren't behaving like Kuiper Belt objects should, and then they just ran a bunch of things on it and found that it must that those objects must be getting uh, affected by a, a larger gravitational body, which obviously we can't see because of how far away it is. Because right now, if it does exist, it's about 75 times farther than Pluto. So it's way out there. But they've found even more objects since the initial finding that are doing this whole strange orbit uh, that are probably affected by a nearby gravitational body. This is not definitive of anything, but just the fact that they're finding more and more objects that fit the models of being affected by a large mass of something out there. So it's, it's just more and more of these little things that are showing up saying, hey, we've got yet another big honking planet that's part of this solar system. It's kind of like a, um, a ripple kind of thing, isn't it? It's just something doesn't look quite right. Almost like, uh, I keep having these Star Trek references, when um, <laughs> it's what we do. something is cloaked and you can just yes. see that. <laughs> that's actually a really freaking good analogy because we can't see it, but, but there's more and more evidence that something is there. Yeah. Scott Kelly apparently has already lost the height that he gained in space. So, obviously, he was up there for almost a year, 340 days. Uh, and he apparently gained about an inch and a half while up on the space station. It's not like his body just suddenly decided to grow, but it was that the microgravity uncompressed his spinal discs. So, which, God, that's that actually doesn't sound pleasant at all. No. Uh, but now that he's back, he says that he's been squished back to normal height. So, uh, or, or has, as he put it, gravity pushes you back down to size. <laughs> <laughs> so it's just still the notion of, oh, yeah, my, my spinal disc's uncompressed, and now they're compressed. Again. No big deal. It, it sounds remarkably but, like a Turkish massage. <laughs> <laughs> it just sounds painful. <laughs> to somebody who doesn't know any better, that just sounds painful. So and this is just the start of all of his measurements, because... Obviously, one of the main reasons why he was up there so long was to see what kind of effects will being in, uh, like, Mars, because it's going to take many years to get there. You know, that kind of thing. Somebody who's permanently going to be in a microgravity, what kind of effects is that is it going to have on them? They're also finding that, well, they're going to be doing tests on uh, redistribution of body fluids in the skull and brain, bone loss, muscle atrophy, other things like that. What was really kind of weird, though, are some of the things that he was saying he's experiencing, saying that... Um, any significant contact is almost like a burning sensation whenever I sit or walk. He said, uh, I figured the effect of a year in space would be a little different from shorter flights, but it's more than a little bit different. Uh, he said he's also experiencing sore, uh, muscle soreness and joint pain uh, more than he expected. That's actually kind of interesting because he's been on like six-month flights. Yeah. And he's never had these issues, but now that he's been there for a year, now all of a sudden, you know, sensitivity to touch um, and, and those other things. Kind of interesting to, to think of where's that threshold of, you know, we know the way things are and then suddenly it goes to, whoa, we didn't expect this. With a bit of luck, by the time we actually start colonizing, they'll come up with some kind of gravity generator anyway. <laughs> Right. But, well, you uh, know, maybe 2001 Space Odyssey kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. The you know, rotating rotating the Saturn thing. Uh, yeah. He did say, though, that vision was pretty much the same. Mm -hmm. uh, he said that the 12 months in space was very consistent regarding his vision changes like they were when he was only up there for six months. That's at least something, uh, but they do say that it'll take a, a year, maybe even two, until their full medical analysis on him is finished. 
Right. So it'd be so, interesting because they did some experiments on him and they did the same on, on Mark as well uh, to see the differences. So it'd be interesting to see the results of those tests. Yeah, it's, I mean, I understand that microgravity, there's a lot of stuff for that gravity that we take for granted, you know, <laughs> like like Richard Garriott in our, our first episode. <laughs> yeah. That was an interesting story. It um, was. The... the, 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 the <laughs> Um, all I'm going to say is the toothpaste analogy uh, on, uh, <laughs> yes. on that one. <laughs> <laughs> yes, definitely for that one. <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, I, I will encourage everyone, um, as, as we mentioned at the uh, at the top of the show, as, as they say in the radio, that um, we did make a... Um, Yuri's Night podcast last year and um, there were some very interesting people involved and Richard Garriott was one of them and uh, he is uh, a friend of the show and a very very interesting guy to listen to but yeah uh, I think I'll put a link to last year's Yuri's Night podcast so people can have a I'll listen to that also um, and then you'll know what we're talking about with the uh, the toothpaste analogy but yep. um <laughs> getting used to things in space he did say it does take some time to uh to do it i mean he had um i think he had about two weeks up there wasn't it something like that up on the space station mm-hmm. um and conducted a lot of experiments while he was up there and i've, I've put a link actually on the uh, on the tgp nominal facebook page he has released a playlist on youtube of all the different experiments that he did for school children um they wrote oh, cool. into him and uh, he conducted some of the experiments and, he, and things while he was up there. So um, put a link up there and you can have a look at those as well. Yeah, there you go. It, it's also interesting that now that people are starting to really focus on Mars, some of the things that are coming out regarding those sorts of issues, it's just like, for some reason, there seem to be a lot of articles about sex in space. Um yeah. <laughs> Which is, wow, okay, either these people are just, this is an excuse to talk about something perverted, or <laughs> you know, this is just something really new to them. I don't know. It's a, it's a difficult one, isn't it? Because it's, it's going to be needed to be done, because if we're going to colonize, you're going to have oh, to sure. reproduce. Yeah, oh, yeah. So, um, unless it does mean sorting out the business beforehand and putting it in some kind of in vitro tube or, or something like that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, we're we're not we're not going to have to discuss that here. Not not, not in any detail whatsoever. No, <laughs> you folks want to know? Go to Google. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's, it is something they're going to have to work out because uh, yeah, colonization isn't going to happen. <laughs> no. This is one of those bittersweet stories. I read the article and then I read its update and I was like, oh man. That is amazing. So we're obviously well beyond the Challenger explosion. You know, yeah. We're 30 years past that. And there were a lot of things going on with the with the Challenger. And one of the things that went on behind the scenes was one of the engineers who's, who goes by the name of Bob Ebling. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. He basically was telling NASA, don't launch it. He knew what was going to happen to those O-rings if it got cold, and he and a, a, a couple of other engineers were getting together and telling NASA, don't launch this thing. In fact, according to this, he told his wife the night before, it's going to blow up, which it did, obviously, 73 seconds after liftoff, no more Challenger. But he's had guilt over that 
for 30 years. Uh, he was 89 when the, the first of this article came out. And it was just really sad to hear everything because he said that, uh, I was one of the few that was really close to the situation. Had they listened to me and waited for a weather change, it might have been a completely different outcome. NASA ruled the launch. They had their minds set on going up and proving to the world that they were right and they knew what they were doing. But they didn't. Uh, so he said that there was more than enough of the NASA officials and Morton Thiokol managers to say, hey, let's give it another day or two. No one did. There's a lot of stories as to why that was the case. The biggest theory on that one is that it was linked to President Reagan's State of the Union address that was supposed to happen that night. And it would have been great to be able to talk about it with Challenger, you know, had just launched that day. Mm -hmm. So there was a lot of a lot of things suggesting that. But. I mean, who really knows? But, I mean, this poor guy has had guilt since then, uh, saying that I could have done more, I should have done more. And he even got so bad that, that at some point he's, he was thinking, I think that was one of the mistakes that God made. He shouldn't have picked me for the job. But next time I talk to him, I'm going to ask him, why me? You picked a loser. That's how much this whole thing affected him. Because you know he, he was just that convinced that he should have said more. He could have said more and didn't. Well, that piece aired on uh, National Public Radio back in January. And a month later, they did an update. And basically, he no longer had some guilt after that. A bunch of people wrote in uh, saying, you know, this was not your fault. Showing sympathy because he was overruled. That's what it it was simple chain of command. Yeah. He was overruled, but he had himself convinced that he still should have been able to convince them. He wasn't able to, and he'd been living with the guilt of challenger for 30 years, you know, and when you are talking to God and you call yourself a loser, you, you know, that that's pretty bad. So, um, a bunch of other people like engineers wrote in saying, you know, it's not your fault. You know, you have to go through the chain of command. He wasn't the decision maker. He was just an engineer. So there was just a bunch of all of that. And he even said, after hearing all of those letters of sympathy and support, saying, you know, that's easy to say. But after hearing that, I still have that guilt right here, you know, pointing to his heart. You know, other listeners writing in saying, you know, you presented the correct data and blew the whistle. You are not a loser. You are a challenger. You know, and he just he wasn't buying it because these people were not NASA. They were not Morton Thiokol. You know, these were just people writing in showing support. Well, that changed because a man by the name of Alan McDonald was actually Ebling's boss at the time of the incident. And he wrote in to say that his definition of a loser is somebody that really doesn't do anything, but worse yet, they don't care. You did something and you really cared. That's the definition of a winner. And then reflecting back to what happened, if you hadn't called me, they were in such a go mode, we'd have never even had a chance to try to stop it. Now, addressing the whole issue of, you know, NASA's decision makers not listening, how he should have done more, he could have done more. Uh, McDonald said, you just don't do that. They'd probably send a van out with some white coats and picked you up. The launch director doesn't take those outside calls either. So basically what he's saying is there is not a damn thing more you could have done. What was interesting, though, is that uh, another one who's George Hardy. He was the deputy director of engineering at the Marshall Space Flight Center, and he supervised Morton Thiokol's production of the booster rockets. He went on after the whole incident happened, saying that he was appalled when Ebling and the other engineers said Challenger shouldn't fly. You know, that was his baby. Those were his engines, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. But he says now that he's had 30 years to think about that, he says that he's actually concluded that that was of no great value to me or anyone else to have that kind of attitude. And he wrote 
to Ebeling. So now we actually have someone in charge of Morton Thiokol writing in said that you and your colleagues did everything that was expected of you. The decision was a collective decision made by several NASA and Thiokol individuals. You should not torture yourself with any assumed blame. So then after that, he said uh, that I know that is the truth and that my burden has been reduced. I can't say it's totally gone, but I can certainly say it's reduced. Okay, so that helped. But the real one came uh, from a statement that NASA had actually sent that said that we honor the Challenger astronauts not through bearing the burden of their loss, but by constantly reminding each other to remain vigilant and to listen to those like Mr. Ebeling who have the courage to speak up so that our astronauts can safely carry out their mission. So that was an actual release by NASA regarding the whole incident. And apparently after that, he clapped long and hard and shouted, Bravo! Well, he's addressed this to everybody who showed us support. Thank you. You've helped bring my worrisome mind to ease. You have to have an end to everything. His guilt was finally gone. 30 years of pain gone, and he died on March 22nd at the age of 89. So he got his re- 30 years of pain. He finally got his redemption, and he was able to die in peace. It was almost like he's saying, my work is done. Pretty much. Yeah, I thought that too. He wanted to live long enough to possibly get his vindication, although he, you know, he kind of gave up on that when he you know, called himself a loser. But he lived long enough to get that vindication, and that's why it's just to be able to hear that and... It's a bittersweet thing, but I'm glad that he finally got that vindication as opposed to it being after his death. Which a lot of these things happen that way, don't they? Uh, yeah. People get apologies and uh, things after they died, which is great for their families, but um, right. not for them personally. Hello, Alan Turing. Yeah, very much so. But yeah, uh, in a lot of these situations, when things go right, it's we did this. But when it goes wrong... You did that. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately. It's uh, teamwork when it needs to be. And then finger pointing when things go wrong. But I but think... To their credit, at least that one guy was able to say, you know, I was wrong back then. Mm-hmm. And for NASA to come out, I guess they heard the story as well. And for them to come out and say, don't, don't be guilty over that. That was really cool. That was really cool of both of them to do that. I think maybe because of Columbia, that might have changed people's uh, mindset on things at, at NASA. And because um, all the, the new safety precautions that came in and, and all that kind of stuff. And safety was the number one priority. But then rules and regulations in health and safety have changed a lot since the 80s. <laughs> That's true. That's true. But, you know, and the other thing is you can only prepare so much. You know, there's only so much that you can really think of that would happen and be catastrophic. Now, I mean, obviously, when it comes to the O-ring with the Challenger, some guys knew. Yeah. But space is not safe, no matter what we do, no matter what rules and regulations we put in in, in place. Mm-hmm. Space will never be safe. I mean, at the end of the day, you are pretty much on the top of... Well, it's technically classed as a ballistic missile. Yeah, a controlled explosion. Yeah. I mean, that is pretty much what Yuri was on top of, because mm-hmm. the Vostok rockets, that's what they were designed for. They, were, they weren't they were designed to send pe- people into space. They were for other uh, usage. Yes. <laughs> uh, as we say, that was that was the Cold War. That was a completely different... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> completely different thing altogether. <laughs> Things haven't changed that much. It's still the same principle. And uh, as we keep saying, and we say it a lot on this show, space is hard. 
Yep. Always will be. But yeah, it's nice to hear that he got his, his vindication at the end. Yep. So, Space Shuttle. Space Shuttle. As expensive as it was, I still miss that bird. Oh, yeah. Anyway, the uh, last of the uh, Space Shuttle external tanks is on its way to Los Angeles for display. And if you live in the L.A. area, you'll actually be able to see it being wheeled to its final destination. Right now, it's on its way through the Panama Canal, or it's heading down to the Panama Canal. It's going to the California Science Center. It'll be teamed up with Endeavor. Uh, Yeah, I guess so. They don't say specifically here from what I can see, but um, I didn't get an update, and I probably should have. But the tank actually should have departed from Louisiana today. Okay. And again, this is weather permitting. That's why I said I probably should have gotten an update before I did the show. But, well, obviously you've seen those tanks. They're 154 feet long, Mm -hmm. 32 feet wide. These are beasts. Oh, yeah. I've seen (laughs) a a scale, uh, you know, two scale replica of one of them uh, when I was was in Florida. And, yeah, they are big. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So, uh, if it did leave today, then its departure is obviously coinciding with the first space shuttle mission, uh, you know, Yuri's flight. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, it's expected to arrive in San Diego on the week of May 9th, and it'll wait another week before leaving for Marina del Rey, where it should be brought ashore on May 19th. The arrival at Marina del Rey is going to be celebrated at the California Science Center's 18th annual Discovery Ball, uh, which is going to be held on Friday, May 20th at the marina. So what they did from there, though, is there is a map showing which route it's going to take. I said route, not route. Thank you. I said route because uh, there's an E at the end of the word. So it's going to cover three and a half miles over the course of a day on Saturday, May 21st, if all goes as planned. So it's going to be going really slowly. And I'm not going to describe where it goes because it's going to go to this street, to this street, to this street, to this California state route, to this street, to this parkway, to this street. And just we'll have a link in the show notes, which will show the path that it's going to take. So if you live in the L.A. area or the San Diego area, Area, you get to see the last external tank for the space shuttle known as ET-94. And hey, if we have any listeners out there, feel free to send us photos. We would really appreciate it. Actually, a friend of mine lives in L.A. and he used to work for NASA. He might be able to get there. Ooh. I'm going to have to contact him and say, hey, buddy. I'd imagine that some of the people that were involved with uh, Yuri's Night L.A. would probably. That's true, too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, they're probably just, you know, if they didn't already know about this, I'm sure they did. Yeah. <laughs> but if they didn't, they're probably just drooling right now. Right. When we come back uh, after this break, we will be joining with Alan Taylor-Shearer and his son Connor when they visited the National Exhibition Centre in Birmingham for a very special event. We can thank the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, the USSR, for many things. They invented the space race, they put the first people in space, the first dogs in space, the first space walker, the first robot car on the moon. I never met Yuri Gagarin, the first man in space, but I did meet Alexei Leonov once, and he would have been the man to land that, the lunar cabin, the Soviet moon lander, on the moon surface, if only the N1 moon rocket had worked and the Russians had got there before the Americans. I never, ever, ever thought I'd see that. That was secret for so many years, and it's wonderful to see it here at the exhibition Cosmonauts at the Science Museum in London, celebrating our greatest achievement. So, thank you, everybody in the American and Russian space programs. 
because without their efforts we wouldn't be able to do stuff like this today we wouldn't have the great technological advance which led to microprocessors and data storage which allows me to do things like this record a bit of video on a tiny tiny camera like this but thank you Yuri thank you Alexi happy Yuri's night this is Arnold J. Rimmer from Red Dwarf. You're listening to TGP Nominal. Listen to it. Hi, and a big welcome to the Big Bang Fair from me, Tim Peake, on board the International Space Station. Now, as an astronaut, I love anything to do with science, technology, engineering, and maths. And the Big Bang Fair is a great place for you to both learn and to have fun through lots of exciting, hands-on activities. So, have a great day, and don't forget to check out the UK Space Agency stand. I'll see you there. Okay, so Connor, uh, we've arrived at the NEC in Birmingham. This is the Big Bang Fair. We're going to see a lot of uh, we're going to see a lot of science happening. We're going to see uh, a lot of uh, innovation. Okay, let's take a walk and let's just have a look at what we see as we uh, make our way around the exhibition because. We're in Exhibition Hall 20 at the NEC. Yes. As you can see, it's very busy. Uh, lots and lots of school parties lots here. Lots of school people. Lots of school people here. To the UK Space Agency, the ESA. Ah, space, that's more science Yes. Now, this is something that I know Mark was particularly keen for us to take a look at today. Yes. Uh, we've got somebody dressed up as an astronaut there. And uh, this, there's a gentleman there who seems to have been doing a... Uh, oh, oh I, I can see what he's doing. Let's have a look at this. What's this, what's this young lad here? Okay, so we've got a wheel on a stick with some kind of curved sticks attaching the wheel to the stick. Yeah. And now the wheel is spinning. What's happening to... The wheel is spinning and the person is sat on the chair and so momentum is spinning the chair spinning him aha the wheel is imbalanced meaning it, it kind of pushes and pulls right so what forces are being used there uh, gravity i believe and momentum and it's effectively spinning spinning a gyroscope isn't yeah. it it's a gyroscope so yeah. yeah so he's using a gyroscopic momentum yeah to actually cause movement of another object. Yeah. What is it we're looking at? This is our Mars rover prototype. Uh, this one's called Bruno. We have three in Stevenage. Uh, this one we don't use for testing so much, so we're bringing it here for a demonstration. Um, so it's part of the ExoMars project, which will be, well, half of it has already launched two days ago, uh, which includes an orbiter and uh, a test lander. Um, the rover will be following it in about two years' time, so we're just about to start building the real one in Stevenage. Uh, and the main goal of the mission is to look for signs of life. Signs of life, so we've got to that stage now? Yeah, to look for either current life or any evidence that there has been life in the past. So the orbiter that's just been sent, um, I believe it's uh, looking for signs of methane in the atmosphere, which will be a fairly good signifier. Um, this one, uh, the main equipment it's going to have on board is a two-metre drill at the front, which is, I think, much larger than any drill that they've taken onto Mars before, so it can take a sample from quite deep in the ground, uh, and then it'll have a laboratory on board to be able to analyse the samples um, and send the results back and hopefully, hopefully find something. Is there anything there that's, uh, that's, that's 
Can you tell us anything about the many, many boxes that are on top of it? Personally, I don't know that much about them, uh, other than that they, they they control the motors, they help run it. Because this is just a prototype, those are pretty much just for running running it as it is. It's had anything unnecessary stripped of it, because uh, this one is capable of doing autonomous navigation, which is another one of the key features of this rover. Uh, but at the moment, it's not set up for that. But, yeah, the real one... Uh, will be able to autonomously navigate which hasn't been done before so we use the cameras uh, particularly the high one which is supposed to be approximately head height um, to build up a 3d map of its environment so it can work out where it's safe for it to go and where it needs to avoid and then we can just give it a destination and it will find its own way there so you're not constantly giving it commands waiting for the signal to go there and come back um, yeah because that slows progress down a lot because I know speed has been one of the things with these rovers, isn't it? Actually getting to the location before the, the experiment can take place. So um, is the, how, how are you getting over that? Uh, well, the autonomous navigation really helps with that uh, because, again, you don't have to wait for the relay for the, you know, for the signal to travel there and travel back. Uh, and analyze the data it does that all itself so it can move a much greater distance in one day than a, an equivalent rover like curiosity because the main reason we have metal wheels is that if we took up rubber as an orga- organic compound and that would completely contaminate all of our results as it is we're building it in a clean room up to a much higher standard than any of our other spacecraft uh, so that there's no risk of taking any life forms with us yeah, that's going to be very important, isn't it? <laughs> you don't want to suddenly discover you found life, but it's what you brought with you. Exactly. It's, yeah, it's a combination of yeah, contaminating our results, but also contaminating the surface generally. You don't want to do that. Thank you very much for your time. You're very Appreciate welcome. Cheers. Bye. OK, let's go to the, to the UK Space Agency now. My name is Libby Jackson, and I work for the UK Space Agency. OK. What are you planning on doing here? I'm here with the UK Space Agency. We've got a stand and we're telling everybody, particularly this year, all about Tim Peake and his mission. He's the British European Space Agency astronaut. He's up in space at the minute on the six-month mission. Um, he's, we're highlighting his mission, all the science that goes behind it to get the people here today excited, interested, engaged, seeing that science is a career, space is a career. We have a fantastic British space industry and we want people to know about that. If someone wanted to become an astronaut, what would they have to do to, to go into space, basically? So at the moment, the European Space Agency, they only hire astronauts every 10 years or something. So a lot of it is being about being in the right place at the right time, which is what happened with Tim. But anyone can do that by basically working as hard as they can as something they really enjoy. Astronauts come from all sorts of different backgrounds. Tim uh, was in the Army and, and a test pilot, but he got a degree later uh, in life through the Army. Some people have gone and done PhDs in the scientists. So it's about having a technical background. It's about being really good at that, being committed and engaged. There's some things you can't change because we're looking for generally fit and healthy people with certain sort of personality traits because you're going to go and spend six months in a tin can with no shower, very noisy. You need to be the right kind of person who can handle that um, but that said so just keep working as hard as you can anything and then when the application process comes around apply and see where you get to but also we're moving into the sort of future of perhaps commercial space flight and commercial space tourism so I say to any kids out there 
particularly the men, particularly kids, but anyone, yeah. you start saving a couple of pounds a week, 10, 15 years' time, you can probably afford to go and buy a ticket with, say, someone like Virgin Galactic or the other people and go into space yourself. So there's different ways of doing it. Okay. So what's your history? Uh, you, you say you were, you were a flight director. Is that right? Um, how, how did you get there? So when I was growing up, I, I'd still there. I always liked space. I was fascinated by it. I looked up at the stars and things. Um, and so as I sort of, you, you can go back and look at my work through even near primary school when I was given a sort of piece of homework, I'd always write about space. But back then, I didn't know we had a British space industry and I didn't know that I could go and get a job in it. Um, so I enjoyed science. I enjoyed maths. Um, went through school, worked hard at those. And then um, when I was 17, we had to do some work experience. Everybody was writing off to, to the local people. And I remember saying to a friend, you know, I'd really like to work for NASA because I didn't know about ESA then, didn't know about the UK, well, the UK Space Agency, didn't exist. So I wrote off to NASA. I said, can I come do some work shadowing? They said, yes. Amazing. My poor parents said, oh, that's amazing too. Bless them. They found me in the airfare and I went and spent two weeks in Houston. So I saw this wonderful world of human spaceflight, which opened my eyes to it. And that was when I thought, yeah, I that's what I want to do. I want to work in human spaceflight. But I came home. And I went, I want to work in human spaceflight, but I'm a Brit. And Britain at the time didn't do human spaceflight. And I didn't know about ESA and so on. So I sort of just went back and I carried on and did a physics degree. And I kept going, well, yeah, I'd like to work in space, but I don't know how. So I, I did my physics degree at Imperial College. Um, really found I was never going to be a physicist. Wasn't really quite set up for long days in the lab. But kept liking space. And then I found out that you could do a master's degree in astronautics and space engineering. So I went to Cranfield University and I did that. Um, and then I, just kept, I, I discovered the organization called UK Sense, UK Students for the Exploration and Development of Space. Fantastic group of students. Anyone out there is listening, like space, is a student, should definitely find out about them because they sort of connected me and introduced me to this wonderful British space industry. So when I graduated, um, I got a job at Airbus, they're now called Airbus Defence and Space. I was uh, flying satellites. And from that, I discovered that ESA existed. The Columbus module was about to launch. So I was in the right place at the right time. Um, and just applied for jobs and went and worked in mission control in Munich. So then I worked there for seven years and eventually became a flight director. So I succeeded in doing back what I wanted to do at 17. Loved that, but then knew that when Tim's mission was announced, wanted to do something, and was really lucky. I found a job here in the UK, working for the UK Space Agency, working with Tim's mission. So now I manage the education program, and I'm responsible for making sure that we tell all these wonderful kids out there that, that space is brilliant, and we're using Tim's mission to, to excite and inspire them in space and science. And it's a wonderful, wonderful job to have. So my message to any of your listeners is, whatever it is you want to do in life, just go out there and, and follow your dreams. Don't let anyone tell you that you can't do it. You know, race, gender, disability, all these things that people say, you can't do it. Yes, you can. You absolutely can go and follow your dreams. Um, and I'd love for people listening to you know, get involved in science and space, but whatever it is, go and do it, work hard, and you can achieve whatever you'd like. That's how I did it, really. That, that's basically the message that we put out on TGP Nominal. Uh, the garbage pod. Yes. Uh, but there's a, there's a spin-off from that called TGP Nominal, yes. and um, this is this is exactly what we tell people. We, have, we link, link up with a co-host in the US um, and is a space fanatic, but today is about Connor um, discovering about the UK Space Agency and uh, and how to get there. Yeah. Oh, do you want to come away? 
the UK Space Agency. We had, we're a very small organisation actually. We look after the policy, we look after the licensing and things. And we have people, again, in spe- like the space industry from all sorts of different backgrounds. Um, but so really, my advice, I mean, technical subjects are good, but you've got to go and do something that you enjoy and that you can study well. So go and do that. Um, as a civil service organisation, we, we only have to be honest, we only have jobs very frequently at the moment because you know in the current climate uh, there's only so many positions, but they get advertised through civil service jobs, so you can look out for those. But as well as the UK Space Agency, the industry is growing and growing. We you know employ tens of thousands of people, all walks of life. If it's something that you are interested in, go and do it. If you're here today being you know as a podcast and you like journalism, we need we've got space journalists, we've got people covering the industry. Go and chat to, to some of the other journalists who are out there. Go and work in space news, these sorts of things. And, and just keep sort of banging on doors until someone lets you try to do something that you enjoy doing and then make the most of it. Okay, thank you. That's, yeah, my advice, go for it. That's wonderful, thank you. Yeah, thank you for attending. Lovely to meet you. Have a great day here at the Big Bang Fair. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Lovely to meet you, Connor. Lovely to meet you too. Yeah, all the best. Connor, you've had a really good look around the event. We've spoken to some of the explainers, we've spoken to people from the UK Space Agency, uh, we've spoken to physicians, we've spoken to astronomers, we've spoken to chemists. What's the standout bit for you so far today? Probably have to say the astronomy. The astronomy? Mm. Okay. What, what in particular? For a start, England has a space programme, I didn't actually know that. I thought it was just Russia and America. Okay. And the UK Space Agency, so they shoot that way that they gave us lots and lots of information. Mm. Um, and did you notice how she wasn't very specific about what's, what type of um, subjects that you had to study to be involved in space? Was like you would immediately think of physics, wouldn't you? Yeah, physics, maths, yeah. But, but you, you don't have to study those things to be involved in the space much, do you? Mm. You know, I mean, she did actually say to you, if you remember at one point, if you go into journalism, you'd become a space journalist. You know, you're still part of the UK space yeah. team, but working in one of those in those different areas that supports getting one person up into the International Space Station. I mean, I personally wouldn't go to space. Gravity kind of took that idea away from me. Why, why wouldn't you go to space? For a start, the food is horrible. <laughs> also... I heard that while you're in space, you have to like do six, nine hours of exercise a day. I'm not doing that. that but, but you get a great time. <laughs> no, I, I, I'll stay here on the ground and look. Okay, so you're going to stay on terra firma. Yeah. Keeping your feet planted safely on the ground. Yes. So space does interest you. Yes. Yeah, that was Connor and uh, Alan's day at the Big Bang Fair. Very cool. It is. I mean, the one woman, she was definitely excited to be talking to him. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. uh, She's great. Libby is fantastic. Libby Jackson is uh, fantastic, and she's looking forward to hearing uh, the podcast, actually. (laughs) So um, let us know what you think, Libby. 
Spanhead Productions are a small independent sound recording company based in rural Hertfordshire. We specialise in creating content for all your podcasting needs, whether it be field recordings, fox pops, or capturing the atmosphere during social events. Editing is a very time-consuming job, so Spanhead Productions are on hand to take away some of the burden for you. Just advise us on how you'd like your content to sound, and we will do the rest. We can even help you design and manage a website for your podcast too. Visit us now, spanheadproductions.com. Weebly.com. That's spamheadproductions.weebly.com. So I think that uh, rounds it up for this episode of TGP Nominal. It's been our usual fun look at uh, what's going on out there in the universe. <laughs> well, we'll be back with uh, another episode towards the end of the month. And we've uh, got so much to talk about. Oh, yeah. Once again, there's probably going to be a lot of Star Wars-based stuff on there. Well, I mean that, but I also did see... Batman v Superman Dawn of Justice and I have my opinions on that movie uh-huh. I and am. the critics who are just trashing it which we kind of expected they would not that bad well it's fun. not even so much that but I don't know if you've listened to my latest widescreen.org podcast but it was also their reaction to people's reaction to their critiques it was right. like a comedy of errors so it's alright to tear something apart but when people start criticizing them they don't like it uh, yeah, pretty much. <laughs> That's pretty much what it comes down to. And I've definitely got to look at the dish because I, I checked to see what Rotten Tomatoes thought of it. That's got a 96% approval rating. Oh, right. I didn't realize it was that high. Yeah. and Now, that's for actual critics. Uh, for audience score, it's 81%. So that tells me this is a movie that i got to watch. Yeah, it's, it's a good movie. It is. Um, it's very underrated because um, it's obviously been an Australian movie. Um, but it, it is based around a true story believe it or not that's so, what it was saying here so um, yeah definitely watch it so let's wind things up and um, yeah just listen out for our next episode so it's going to be everything in the world of geekdom rather than the world of space and uh, yeah we've got a lot of stuff to talk about yes, yes we do because at the moment things are moving at quite a pace in the not just sci-fi we're talking uh, superheroes and uh, all kinds of stuff as we mentioned uh, with the uh, uh, with the Dawn of Justice um, uh, one thing we will be talking about soon not quite yet is um, we have got our invitation to the Department of Ability comic book launch in London on June the 26th and uh, we have been told that superhero costumes are optional <laughs> so we've got that coming up also we have Wickham Comic Con 2016 coming up as well so it's getting a bit busy and we can also get into video games if we want because PAX East is coming up at the end of the month too oh yeah of course of course yeah definitely that's my haven yeah yeah um, because uh, I know you didn't go last year and you were miserable (laughs) I I was so it it goes over three days for PAX East it's Friday Saturday and Sunday Mm -hmm. by Saturday afternoon I was so miserable because you know I wasn't about to just ignore it 
So Twitch will stream most of the things that go on there. So I was just watching Twitch and I was so miserable by, by Saturday afternoon. My wife just said, John, I don't care how much it costs next year. Go. <laughs> um, I was kind of like that with Star Wars celebrations, watching the uh, Verizon coverage yeah. of all 30 hours of it or whatever they showed. As soon as they announced that it was going to be in London, I'm getting tickets. <laughs> I've also applied for press accreditation, which I should know by the end of the month whether we've got it or not. Oh, nice. So, uh, and you know, we went to Field the Force Day uh, in October last year. Yep. Uh, they have a stand at Star Wars Celebration for all three three days oh nice so uh, they'll be able to promote themselves so that'll be cool so I'll be able to meet up with those guys again before Field the Force Day which we've been invited along to again <laughs> so nice yeah we look forward to um, speaking to you all again soon and uh, remember on Yuri's night we always raise a glass to the great man and we always say Piacoli. Let's go. Well, that about wraps it up for this episode of TGP Nominal. Be sure to visit www.tgpnominal.weebly.com for the show notes for this or any other episode. Just look for the relevant tab on the menu. Let us know what you think of the show. Send an email to garbagepod at virginmedia.com because your input is our output. Or you can use the social media icons at the top of the page that include Twitter and Facebook. If you would like to subscribe to any of our podcasts, you can do so via iTunes, the RSS feed, and also TuneIn and Stitcher On Demand Radio. You can find a link on our podcast pages. Don't forget to rate and review us. If you like what we're doing here, then why not buy us a pint by clicking on the donate button on any of the podcast pages, and don't forget to spread the word about us. Station, this is Houston ACR. Thank you. That concludes the event.